Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, we've been talking about expectation. What is our expectation? What's your vision for, you know, your life, for our church's life, for our nation's life? I heard a, a minister I follow a lot. This was back in the in um, spring after um, President Trump was inaugurated, and there was there. I mean, there still is huge divisions. But he made the point. He said we need to quit emphasizing our divisions and start talking about the United States of America and emphasize our commonality and our unity. There, there have, we have never had a moment when we weren't divided, that we didn't have political parties. I mean, we, we think it's rough now, but, you know, back in the uh, um, 1800s, they had fistfights in Congress, you know, they had congressmen attacking other congressmen with canes and literally beating them to the floor. We have some knotheads in Congress, and, and it's been that way forever. Um, Will Rogers um, used to talk about, you know, how Congress was so corrupt and so idiotic. And, and um, uh, Mark Twain in the 1800s did the same thing. So this is, this is not anything new, other than I, I do believe that because of the times we are in, it's, there, there's more intensity to things today. But we, as the church, need to understand that we are called to live above that fray. We're called to be involved in our communities, to you know, find a, a candidate that you support, give to them, volunteer for them, do whatever you want to do. But you still, that's not our answer. That's not where our supply comes from. Our expectation has to be that God is our source. Our job's not our source. Our, our, you know, our spouse is not our source. Our kids are not our source. We only have one source, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Let me just, I'm going to touch on these really quickly. This whole thing of expectation, we've centered in on this word that we saw in, in Luke chapter 2 with Simeon and with Anna. And in both places, New King James says they were waiting expectantly for the Messiah. That word is prosdecamai. Pros meaning to lean in, decamai meaning to take something and make it your own. They embraced the idea that there is a Messiah coming. That idea was not unique to Simeon and Anna. Those are the only two that we have recorded. But I'm sure there were other people, and there had been other people. You read Hebrews chapter 11. It says that all of those men and women of faith died not seeing what they were believing for. They were exercising faith in the promise of the Messiah to come. And these two people actually got to see him, got to hold him, and, and died, I'm sure, happy, realizing the Messiah is here. But for us, God has called us to live a life of expectancy. This should be our attitude towards everything. But that does not mean that we're not going to experience trials, and tribulations, opposition, persecution. Um, um, John 15, 20, Jesus said, you know, if they persecuted me as your master, don't, don't be surprised if they're going to persecute you. What they do to the master, they're going to do to the servant. We're not any better than he is. In fact, that's part of what Paul talks about in the, um, um, several of the epistles, about filling up the measure of the sufferings of Christ. When he talks about filling up the measure of the sufferings of Christ, he's not talking about the sufferings that Jesus did to pay for our sins. Only Jesus could do that, and he did it completely. 
But the, 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 the persecution that Jesus um, <clears throat> received is not over. When, when Jesus met Paul on the road to, to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took that personal. You're not just persecuting a group of Jews here. You're coming after me because you're coming after my body. And I'm ticked off about it. That's the Roberts translation, but it's pretty accurate. Well, <clears throat> even before that, though, Psalm 34, 19, the psalmist said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but... I love, I love it when God says, but. But he delivers us out of every one. There are going to be problems. There are going to be things. But there's always deliverance. It's always there. And that's our expectation should not be for the trials and the tribulations and the problems. Our expectation has to be for the deliverance. We know this is coming. The, one of the scriptures we're going to go to in a while is in Luke 21, which is talking about the last days and about coming into the tribulation period. And, and um, whether it's in Matthew or, or in Luke, they both record that, that the, the end times, the times we are in now, are like um, a woman having labor pains. And I, I used to teach this. It's a chemical reaction. It's one of the few... Um, hormone reactions that, that builds on itself. It gets stronger and stronger. You, the first, usually for most women, the first birth pang you have, the first labor contraction you have, you don't even notice it. Unless you're wired in somewhere, you don't know you're in labor. But I guarantee you, five minutes before that baby's born, you know you're in labor. And the great news is five minutes after that baby is born, you don't care about the labor anymore. But that, that period right before birth, it gets hard. It gets rough. Now, I've never been through labor, but believe me, I've had the, 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 the hand squeezing. I've had the, the stares and, and the comments that, you know, this is all your fault. And when this is all over, I will make you pay. It's, it's hard. Well, we are in that, that, that time of labor. We are in the time period where the birth pangs of the new age that's coming. We are in the midst of it. Things are changing so fast. You look at, at, at um, well, I, I had a conversation before Gina's grandmother died. She was born in 1906. She, she died in the 80s. But we sat down and talked because I was, when my grandmother that I was very close to that lived with us, um, I was in high school, I was too stupid and too self-centered as a teenager to even know what a resource I had there. And my grandma was born in, I think, 1889, if I remember right. She had seen some things. And I didn't have enough sense to just sit down and say, Granny, let's talk. And I, I, I'll tell you, I regret it to this day. But with Gina's grandma, she was born in 1906, so she was considerably younger. But I sat down one day and we just talked about the things that she saw. When she was first born, they lived out in the country. The cities had electric lights. She had no electric lights. No one, unless you were super rich, no one had a car. You went to town horse and, and wagon. You had oil lamps. You had a pump. If you were really high class in their neighborhood, you had a pump inside the kitchen. Otherwise, you were going outside the pump. You had an outhouse. Life was a little different than it is today. And she lived from that beginning to before she died, she saw men walking on the moon. Saw planes flying three to four times the speed of sound. I mean, the, the technological change from her birth to her death in the 80s was unbelievable. And the technological changes from her death to today have been even more unbelievable. 
We are in a time period where change, the Bible says that in the last days, knowledge will increase. I mean, it's, I, can, I just read something this morning. I got, you know, after a while, you study for a while, you just, maybe you don't have this, but my brain just goes foggy. And I have to stop, set it aside, and go do something. Well, I was on the internet anyway, because I was studying, and I just read this piece about economic change, and it mentioned that in, I think it was 1998, may have been 97, that the Kodak Company was a multi-billion dollar company. They sold 98% of all the photographic paper that was sold. They were making money hand over fist. They don't even exist today. No one makes photographic paper. Two to three years before that date, digital cameras were invented in the mid-90s. And nobody could take a picture with it. I mean, you, it was so fuzzy and pixelated that who, want, who would want one? It's like one of those things you see at the malls at Christmas time. Stare at it and you'll see a picture. I stared till I had a headache. I never saw anything but just gobbledygook. Well, that's kind of how they work. Today, you, you can take the finest mechanical camera. You cannot take a picture that's as sharp as the best digital cameras. They are much better quality than anything that's ever existed. And it's, who would have thought it? I've, I've, got, a, I've got a better camera on my silly phone than I paid $300 for a, a camera 15 years ago that is worthless today. Things are changing so fast, and if you turn around twice, you don't, you're, you're behind. That just causes disruption and an unsettled feeling in people. That's part of what the end times are. But part of that is that God's shaking things. But we are in the midst of this. But this isn't the only time in history that this has happened. And I, since this is Christmas time, actually today is the, not only are we in the Christmas season, we're in the Hanukkah season. I think today is the fifth day of Hanukkah. And I want to go back and just show you, because this has an effect on your expectation. God knows all of this, and He's known this is coming. He calls the end from the beginning. So when, when we start feeling unsettled, when you start thinking, and you will hear people, you hear people every day, you need to get out of the stock market. You need to get into the stock market. You need to get out of cash and get into gold. Oh, my Lord, you need to get out of gold and get into cash. You, I don't, you can go wherever you want. You can find any opinion you want on economics, on politics, on any subject you want. There's a lot of people that are authoritative and they are experts. And they are experts because they live 50 miles from where you live. That makes them an expert. That's a joke, but it's, there's more truth there than, than told. But God knew all of this was going to happen. In fact, God is the author of most of what's happening. Now, I'm not discounting there. We do have an enemy, and he's authoring death and destruction, and you need to be careful not to assign what God's doing to the enemy. And what the enemy's doing, and especially don't assign what the enemy's doing to what God is doing. Don't blame God for what the devil's working in your life. Amen? Remember, John 10.10, 10, if it's stealing, killing, destroying, that's the work of the devil. It's not Jesus. Well, you never know what God's going to do. Yes, you do. Just read the book. It's easy. Now, to, to prove my point, I want to go back for, for just a second to Zechariah chapter 3. And we're going to, I'm going to do my best. And I say that because you know me. I have a hard time getting through anything quickly. But Zechariah, go to um, Malachi and go left, two books. But in, in Zechariah, this is the time frame. Zechariah is a prophet when the Jews are coming out of Babylon and going back to Jerusalem, going back into the Holy Land. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet, had, had said, and Daniel had read, we are going to, only going to be here 70 years. 
We, for 470 years, we didn't keep the Sabbath rest, so God has allowed us that plus a lot of other things they did. God has allowed us to, to go into captivity, but the time frame of the captivity was determined because they hadn't kept the Sabbath years. They, they, every seven years, they were supposed to let the land rest. And even modern farming, we do this. You rotate crops. You don't, you don't grow corn in the same, um, the same patch of dirt every year. Now, some people will do it, and they think they can stick enough ammonia in there, but it's hard on it. You are better off, most farmers know, that if you rotate your crops, you grow different things in your soil, it's, it's a way of letting the land rest. Well, that's what God told them to do. They didn't do it. But at the end of this 70 years, they're, they're ready to come out and to go back. And God is talking to, to Zechariah about them coming out. And in chapter 3 of, of Zechariah, this is, um, let's start in verse 6. No, excuse me. I've got to back up a little more. Let's just go all the way back to verse 1. This is Zechariah's vision of what's happening. There are two characters in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that we're going to see. One is Joshua the high priest, and one is Zerubbabel. Joshua the high priest, starting in, in Zechariah 3.1, Then he showed me, this is an angel that's showing all of this to Zechariah, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate um, Christ. This is a vision that, that Zechariah's having. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who were st stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. I want you to see this, this picture. You have Joshua the high priest. Israel's been in captivity for, for 70 years. They've been in Babylon. And Zechariah sees this vision in heaven, and here's the high priest, the man who is supposed to represent all of Israel before God. And Satan is standing right there, and it doesn't record what Satan says, but I can tell you what Satan says. Look at him. He's filthy. Those dirty clothes represented the sin of not only of Joshua, but of the entire nation. He's filthy. Satan is pointing out everything that Joshua and the nation have done wrong. And what does Jesus say? Shut up. That's, again, Robert's translation. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, who has chosen Jerusalem. He describes himself. I have two ways he describes himself. I have chosen this city... And is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He doesn't describe Joshua's behavior. He describes Joshua's standing. He was bound for hell. And I plucked him out of that fire and I have stood him next to me. And I am going to clothe him with clean clothes. I'm going to put a clean turban on his head. And he is mine. Satan will always call you by your sin. Jesus will always call you by your name. And your name is righteous. Amen? Now, let's go over to chapter 4. And this is Zechariah. I'm not sure if he fell asleep or just fell out. But in verse 1, it says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and waked, wakened me, as a man who is wakened out of his, out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No. 
You know, it's, it's one of those, well, I wouldn't have asked if I had known. But the angel, I guess he kind of expected him to. Verse 6 says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but basically the angel says, Zerubbabel, God's called you. Here's Joshua the high priest. God's cleaned him up. Now here's your call. You go back to Jerusalem. You rebuild the temple. He's going to tell him in, from verse 8 on down. You're going to set out the, the, the plumb rod. You're going to set out the measuring tape, and you're going to rebuild the temple. And you're going to start it, and you're going to finish it. How is he going to do it? <clears throat> not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this brings us to, and, and, and I'm hoping that this all fits together. I'm hoping you, I can make this clear, because it does fit together. I, I, it's fit together in my brain. Now, whether I can fit it together in yours, God, God's a miracle worker. This whole time, time frame, we have Zechariah. He's living in around 520 B.C., 520 years before Jesus is born. And God's called him to come and rebuild the temple. Now, 150-so-odd years later, maybe a little more, in 315, that's a little over 200 years, um, Alexander the Great comes along. Alexander the Great conquered the entire Mediterranean basin. But he did more than that. And this, this kind of, and I'm, I'm not going to get political, but I'm going to tell you, I have people that, that will tell me, and, and let's just face it, Everybody falls usually in one or two camps. Well, three camps. You've got those that, that think Barack Obama was the savior of the world and those that think he was the Antichrist. And whatever camp you fall in there, the opposite is you think Donald Trump is either the Antichrist or the savior of the world. And then you've got the third camp, well, I just really don't care. But no matter which camp you, you see those two men in, they both... Were, were selected by God to be the president. Now, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I, I was not a fan of, of President Obama. And one of the decisions that he made that just drove me up the wall because I could see how horrible it was, was this, uh, this treaty that he entered into with Iran, which is going to allow them to eventually to develop nuclear weapons. And I'm thinking, why on God's earth would you do that? Well, let me tell you, when, when President Trump just announced that he was going to, you know, move the, the, the uh, embassy, and hopefully he'll follow through on that, um, there, were, there were demonstrations, riots all over the, 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 the world amongst the Muslim population. But what most people don't see, because they're doing it behind the scenes, because Iran is, is marching towards a nuclear weapon, and they're primarily Shiite, the Sunnis, the Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, not Iraq so much, but a little bit in Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, all of those countries behind the scenes are talking with and lining up with Israel for one reason. Always before, before President Obama made this agreement with Iran, they felt very comfortable under our nuclear umbrella. They don't feel comfortable there. They realize they're only one president away of standing on their own. They know Israel will stand against Iran. They know that for certain because Iran's already said, we're just going to wipe you off the face of the planet. So they have no doubt Israel will stand against Iran. So very quietly, they're lining up with Israel and having talks with Israel and, and, and making agreements with Israel. That has to happen in order for the Antichrist to come in. Those countries are going to be the prime movers in making the treaty with the nation of Israel that allows the Antichrist to manifest himself. 
And God, I have no doubt, brought Barack Obama into the presidency just to get that agreement, if nothing else. Amen? We don't know. God is moving chess pieces, and we only see tiny little microscopic pieces of the, of the board. And God's looking at this from years away. He has been doing this. For, for ages and ages with Zechariah, with, with uh, uh, Joshua. When Alexander came in, Alexander was a thug. He killed his own father to gain control of the nation. There's speculation his mom probably helped him. But when he got, when he got control of the nation, his armies couldn't talk to one another. So being the genius, and he was a genius... Uh, it's, it's said that when um, uh, Julius Caesar was, was, he was an ambitious man, and when he was contemplating what he could do as Caesar, it's reported that he actually sat down and cried because he realized that he could never attain to the record that Alexander the Great had attained to. That he was never going to be as great as that man. And it just, it popped his bubble. His ego couldn't handle it. But Alexander sat down and inv invented a very simplified form of Greek called Koine Greek. And then when he, when he conquered all of this, these areas, he made all of these captive peoples learn this language. And when they learned that language, then he started the process of Hellenization. Hellen Hellenization was accepting the Greek culture. And at first it was advantageous. Let's take on the culture, we can do business, we can make money, and let's face it, everything, you know, is about making money, feeling good. We've, we've had some of that same stuff in, in the United States, and in, in the church, in the, the 20th century, we had the social gospel. The gospel was all about getting people fed and clothed, and, you know, if you've ever watched, and I, I love um, Charles Dickens' writings, but all of Dickens' writings were about the social gospel. Watch the, the, read the book Scrooge. Watch the movies about, you know, A Christmas Carol. It's all about helping the poor. Nothing about your eternal destiny. Just make life better for people here on, on the planet. We need to do that but not neglect the eternal part issues also. But, but Alexander came in and he, he Hellenized this, but in his early 20s, after he had conquered all of these nations, he just up and died. What's he going to do? He has no heirs. He was so busy conquering the world that he never bothered to get married and have kids. So what he did was he took his four generals and he divided his kingdom up into four parts and he assigned four different areas, four different kings. And the area that, that Jerusalem was in eventually came down, uh, I don't, I forgot, I think it was about 150 years after Alexander. There was a ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes. His name describes his personality. Antiochus is a combination of, of the Latin, or the Greek word anti, means to be against, um, Koikos, I think is how you pronounce the second part of his name, means support. Meaning his first name meant, I'm going to oppose the underpinnings of your society. And epiphanies is where we get the word for uh, a manifestation of God. And when you read his name and you interpret it, Antiochus Epiphanes means, I'm going to, under, or I'm going to undercut and be opposed to your what the, the, the basis of your um, society, especially where it comes in, in contact with God being revealed. This was his message to the Jews. And he tried it gently and, and worked on it gently, and the Jews resisted. Some of them resisted, but some of them invited him in. A lot of the priests invited him in for one reason. They wanted the money. And it was monetarily advantageous to, to surrender to Antiochus. But eventually Antiochus, and we see this in our same world today, in the 20th century the church moved to the social gospel, and then suddenly they, the church moved away from just the social gospel to, you know, pretty much anything goes. You know, I, I had a pastor when I, I left to quit teaching and went off to go to Bible school, 
he told me, and I won't name the seminary he went to, was in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, but by his own admission, he estimated half to 75% of his professors who all had PhDs in theology were, did not believe in the new birth. Not just that they weren't saved, they didn't believe it was possible. And they're teaching at a Christian seminary. It's like, I, my head wants to explode when I hear about things like that. How do you do that? It's just, it's, it's crazy. But that attitude in the mainstream churches is what has led us today to churches that have rainbows for their flags and say basically anything goes. We, we can't condemn anyone for their lifestyle because it's just a lifestyle. Sin is just an anachronistic old, you know, fable to keep people under control. No sin is rebellion against God. And, 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 you know, lest we get too puffed up, we're, we're real quick to, to condemn sins of the flesh. But you go to Proverbs and, and read the seven deadly sins, five of them have to do with your mouth. Backbiting, gossiping, being hateful, unloving. Enough said. Antiochus Epiphanes, though, and this is the reason I bring him up, he is the one that, that sparked the Maccabean revolt, which led to the miracle of, of them throwing off, the Jews throwing off these foreign leaders, and Israel became a nation again, controlled by themselves. He did it, he had erected in the temple, with the priest's permission, a, an altar to Zeus, because Zeus was the chief uh, Greek god. And to the final straw that broke the camel's back is he took a hog, led it into the temple, threw it up on this altar, and slaughtered a pig in the temple that's, that um, Zerubbabel had built. And the Judas Maccabeus, that's it. And they revolted. And a few hundred men came to him. And then a few thousand men, and then the entire nation came, and they threw off the Seleucid kings. Now, the sad part about it is, they, um, within a few years, to keep those kings from coming back in and conquer them, they made an alliance with a, a smaller country over here that they thought could help protect them, called Rome. And um, Rome, while Antiochus defiled the temple, Rome leveled the temple at the end. But after Antiochus slaughtered this pig, the, um, the Jews came in, the priests came in that hadn't defiled or hadn't given up believing God. They came in to, to cleanse and to rededicate the temple. And they, when they did, they had to light a menorah. And because in, in Moses' tabernacle and in the first temple, they had a menorah. Andy, can you go ahead and put that picture up? But there, in our world today, there are two types of menorahs. The one on the left here is the menorah of Moses. And it has seven branches. This is the, the menorah that always stood in the temple. It has seven flames, which re represent completion. God created the, the, the world in seven days. Now... There are all kinds of arguments you can have over the time frame of that. But the, 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 the idea wasn't so much the exact time as it was, I did it completely. I'm done. I started it. I finished it. Uh, creation's over after the sixth day. And, and part of the reason I don't get real tied up over, was it 24 hours, is it whatever, is we've been in the seventh day for, you know, by biblical records, over 6,000 years. <clears throat> so, you know, you can argue about the time frame. Obviously, one day is pretty long. But they have this seven-candle menorah. But if you go to anyone's house who celebrates, um, oh, excuse me, I said the one on the left. The one on the right is the menorah of Moses. I can't count. Seven candlesticks. The one on the left is a Hanukkah menorah, 
when they finally got the temple cleansed, they had one vial of holy oil to light this candle with. And the vials of holy oil contained enough oil to burn for 24 hours, one day. And so they, it took eight days to make more holy oil. It was a very precise process they went through. So they had a choice. Do we light the light of God? Do we illuminate the temple? Or wait, postpone what God wants us to do? And they were smart enough, they said, no, we're lighting it. And that one vial that was designed to last one day burned for eight days until the new oil was ready. And that's why this one has, it actually has nine if you count the center one. But it has, when, when you read through Zechariah, and I want to go back there, keep in mind this nine candles, when, when it, he describes the, um, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, so he said, I am looking, and there's a lampstand, a solid gold, with a bowl on top of it, and, the stand, and on the stand, seven lamps. So he's talking about the menorah of Moses. But notice he also says, there are two olive trees, one on either side with a golden pipe into those two olive trees. Even in Zechariah's time, God has already prefaced the new menorah that's coming by these two stand or these two olive trees. Now the significance of the two olive trees is what he says in verse starting in verse six. It's not by might, it's not by um, power, but by my spirit. Oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. We see it. We've got we've got two two olive trees, two sources of the spirit. Well, I wonder what that's talking about. Well, it could mean Jew and Gentile, the one new man that Paul talks about in Ephesians. It, 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 could, be, um, um, it could represent the two, the two functions of Jesus as priest and king. And remember, as the church, we are priests and kings because we have Him in, in, in us. It's, it's um, the Holy Spirit in the Word. Because in the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the traveler and the religious people walk by him, the priest walks by him, but who stops? The Samaritan, the outcast. And what does he do to that traveler who's half dead? He's alive physically, dead spiritually. What does that Samaritan do? He pours in the oil and the wine, the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus. And even more significantly, he takes him to an inn and he gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is enough to keep that man for two days. And keep in mind, in biblical parlance, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So he gave him enough to, for the innkeeper to keep him for 2,000 years. We're right at 2,000 years from the death and, and resurrection of Christ. So it's time for Christ to come back to give the innkeeper some more money to keep us for a while longer. I don't know about you, but that excites me. But it also is us. John 7, 38, Jesus said this of us. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Two olive trees. We have the Holy Spirit, but we have the, the ministry of the Spirit that flows out of That's why our expectation has to constantly be that I am the source. Not me, but Christ in me is the source of all to meet all of the needs of the people that God puts in my life. And I have to look to Him and I have to expect Him to, to, to do it. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Very familiar verse. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. Boy, we are in a dark time. There's darkness that's covering the earth, spiritual darkness, but there is even a deeper darkness on people. 
People, uh, in, in John, I, I think it's in John chapter 3, it said that the light, the, 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 it was a, a condemnation of the nation of Israel, but people in general. The light has come and people love the darkness more than the light, so they hid from the light. Paul said in Corinthians that, you know, in Moses' time, his face shone. And it shone so much with the glory of God that the people of Israel said, Moses, put a mask over your face. We can't, we can't be in the glory of God. We don't want to be. He said, but today the glory of God is demonstrated by the church. So the Jews have put a, a, a shield over their own face because they don't want to see it. It's not just the Jews. It's the world in general. They don't want to hear it. They want to hide from the light because the light shows their heart to be where it is. And they don't want to be confronted with the fact that they're lost and they're dying and they're going to go to hell. Amen? But what, what does Isaiah continue to say? But the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Right now, we are in the midst. This is the, the Jewish New Year was a couple of months ago, maybe a month ago. The Jewish year right now is 5778. Five is the number of grace, seven is the number of completion, eight is the number of new beginnings. The oil, when, when, they, they re, when the Maccabeans rededicated the temple, the oil burned for eight days. It was a new beginning. They had established the land. They got conquered because of their sin. They came back into the land. They compromised their faith and the, the Greeks came in and tormented them and some of them marched right along with the Greeks and finally they, they had enough of it and they stood up and they said, no more. And they took up arms and they conquered and threw off the shackles of their oppressors. God has called us to do the same thing. And when it happened in, in the, the Maccabean revolt, they had a new beginning. Well, God's not called us to take up arms and overthrow our government by force of arms. But He has called us to take up arms and overthrow the rule of the enemy that's trying to suppress us and oppress us and keep us from allowing the light of the gospel to shine forth out of our lives. And when we do that, we have to cleanse our new temple. It's not brand new. Same one I've had for 66 years. But when I cleanse it, remember Paul said, our temple is our body. When I cleanse my temple and I say no more, I'm fully committed. I'm in the boat. I'm not half in, half out. I'm not going to do some things, you know, part way. I'm, I'm, I'm committed. I'm all the way in. Then I may only have enough Holy Spirit anointing to just get started. Lord, I can't do what you called me to do. I don't have the anointing to do it. I don't have the ideas to do it. I don't have, I don't have what it takes. And Jesus looks at you and says, just do what I'm looking for. That way when it works, the glory goes to me, not to you. But if we don't start, the miracle can't happen. And as long as we walk it out, God will continue to provide the oil. He has olive trees. We are one of those trees. All He's asking is tap in. Allow the oil to flow out of you. You ought to have rivers of living water. Looking forward to, to, to next year on the Julian calendar. It's 2018. 2,000 years from when Jesus was born. Approximately 2,000 years from when He died. But it's also 18. It's the year 8. It's a new beginning. Now every day is a new beginning. Uh, Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 6.2, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We have a new beginning every day. 
every day. Lamentations 3 says that, um, this is verse 22 through 24, Throw the Lord's mercies are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. I have expectations in Him. Because when I wake up in the morning, whether it's actually morning or like last night, it's 11.30 at night and suddenly your eyes pop open and it's like time to start. It's like it's not even Sunday yet. It's still Saturday night. Why am I awake? I don't know, but God wanted to do something. But it's a brand new day. It's a new beginning. And I have to learn and get my expectation that no matter what the challenge that comes at me today, there's going to be a river of living water that can come out of me to meet that challenge. There's going to be the oil of the Holy Spirit. If I get out in the middle of it and I sink, be like um, Peter, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. What's Jesus going to say? No, stay in the boat, Peter. It's not me. No, he said, come on out. Peter jumped out there. He wasn't ready. He walked on the water, but then he started looking at his circumstances and thought, oh, Lord, where have I gotten myself into? And he sank. Why? Because he got his expectations off of Jesus and onto the, the, the boisterous waves around him. There are going to be plenty of things. And you are going to have, just like Joshua the high priest, you are going to have Satan standing at your side. And his, it's going to be a constant drumbeat in your head. You can't do this. You don't have enough talent. You don't have enough money. You don't have the right ideas. You don't have enough education. You got too much education. You got way too much sin in your life. I remember you didn't do that, but you thought about it. A real Christian wouldn't have even had the thought, let alone acted on the thought, because on this instant over here, you not only had the thought, but you acted that thought out. You scoundrel. You can't do anything for God. Why would He ever use you? Because I'm willing to say, Lord, help me. Remember, when Jesus went to heaven, when He ascended, He took His blood to heaven. The, 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 the temple was built on the model of the, the throne room in heaven. And there is an altar in heaven that has the blood of Jesus on it. There is going to be a day, and I'm going I'm to close with this thought best I can. There's coming a day when there's going to be a judgment at that throne, the white throne judgment. And we're going to be divided into two groups, the sheep, the goats. And the goats are going to be, there's going to be the books, plural, and I don't know how, it's going to be a huge library. It's going to be a, a huge library of books where, where the, the goats are going to say, judge me out of my works. I was a good man. I can't tell you the number of evangelistic confrontations I've had, and by confrontation I don't mean in-your-face confrontations, but conversations with people. And they will tell me, well, I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't raped any women. I haven't stolen. I'm not a crook. And I'm thinking, wow, you don't have a very high standard. God does have a standard. He said, you want to meet my, my standard? Be perfect. That's all it takes. It's all it takes to earn your way to heaven. Perfection. And when they ask to be judged out of the books of works, God's going to go through those works and He can say, they're not enough, they're not enough, not enough. And then I guarantee you Satan will be pointed at all of us in the sheep pen. And he say, what about them? Their work, his works aren't any better than this guy's works. And when I get ready to say, defend myself, although at that point I probably will have enough sense just to shut up and let Jesus do the talking. But if I try to defend myself, there's nothing I can say to deny that my works don't meet his standard. But what God will hear, the, the ruler of the universe, what he will hear is mercy. My blood has covered that one. You want works? Here's his works. He put faith in me. That's all it takes. A little bit of faith in me. 
I've covered everything. I've done everything he's, he's required for him to go into eternity with us. In fact, he's already in. That's why he's in the sheepfold. Not because he's any great thing, because I believe me. I don't even have to convince you what a scoundrel I am, because I know you. And I know if you go into your head, you know what a scoundrel you are. Because you're not just judged by your actions, you're also judged by your thoughts. And there are a lot of things that you may never act on that you think about. And you think, I'd like to do that. You know, it's like the old uh, uh, TV series, The Honeymooners. To the moon, Alice. Now, if you get that, that uh, illustration, <laughs> you're just way too old. <laughs> oh, Lordy. We all have those thoughts. Everybody has those thoughts. Everybody has those inclinations because we still have a flesh. But all God looks at and all God hears is the blood of Jesus crying out. But we need to get up every morning instead of looking and opening our eyes and thinking, Oh God, it's another day. We need to come out of bed with the expectation, Oh God, it's another day. What are you going to do through me today? What challenges are you going to meet? What can I, well, how can I manifest your spirit today? And if you come with that attitude, God is anxious. It says that He runs to and fro throughout the entire earth to find one person that He can show Himself strong in their behalf. But He needs our cooperation. You've already got all the equipment. You just have to have, give Him access to it. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.